Happy Black Friday. I hope if you're the shopping sort, you're getting all the deals. Anyway, I'm Kate Trinko, and today we're not going to have our usual headlines because I decided that asking the Daily Signal team to work on Thanksgiving would be a Grinch move. But we do have an interview I did with Robert Jackson about an exciting group of charter schools and how they're aiming to make education about the whole person, not just learning random bits of knowledge. As always, please leave us a review or a rating if you're a fan. Now on to our interview. Joining us from the Heritage Foundation's President's Club meeting is Robert Jackson, the Chief Academic Officer of Great Hearts Academies, which has 28 charter schools in Texas and Arizona. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Kate. Could you tell us about Great Hearts Academies? I'd be happy to, and uh, not to be priggish, but we have 30 academies. So I've got to update. You need to update your website. Right? Uh, It's all just (laughs) happening live right here. That's great. So, yeah. So Great Hearts began as a variant on a private school model that was very popular, is very popular, I should say, the Trinity Schools. Uh, There are three of those in existence, and they've been at it for nearly 30 years. This private school model was of great interest to a group of families and professors in Tempe, the the area where uh, Arizona State is located, back in the mid-'90s. They were going to try to bring a Trinity School to Tempe, to Phoenix. Turned out they couldn't figure out the financial model. And so, uh, coincidentally and rather auspiciously, charter laws had just been passed. They figured that if they could take the private model and strip it of any catechesis or any sort of religious instruction, they could offer the academic model to students as a prep school charter option. And thus was born the school known as Tempe Preparatory Academy, still in existence today. Uh, from that humble origin, uh, they, uh, the, the, the leadership of Great Hearts was essentially formed. Many of them were trained at that, at that school, kind of learned the ropes, understood the craft of teaching and, and leadership, really, of schools. Uh, and in 2003, a second school was launched, which became the founding school of Great Hearts Academies. Veritas Prep was formed in 2003 with 120 students in three grades. So if you can imagine roughly three cohorts of 40 apiece. And then each year they would add a grade so that eventually you had a full prep school, grades 7 to 12. Again, this was the model that they had adapted, right, under charter laws and with that private school, prep school model. It was premised on, uh, you know, Latin grammar study, uh, language study, heavy language study throughout. And then, of course, the full complement of math and science and fine arts but the signature course of these, of these schools uh, was what is referred to as humane letters. And in a humane letters course, which is offered two hours a day from 9 to 12, grades 9 to 12, they will read great books. They will read great books and conduct seminars where they're discussing the text. So essentially, you have to come to class prepared because you have to have read Billy Budd right, before you enter that ninth grade classroom and have a conversation about the drama that's unfolding in the pages of Melville's novel. And uh, that Socratic seminar, as it's often referred to, that seminar exchange is really the heart of what we do because when students take a text apart to understand its inner workings and really gather what's happening there and when they have the conversation together, they glean a lot more than if they skim either through the cliff notes, right, or the spark notes, I guess, 
uh, or just get through. You know, what's the main idea? Just as a, they're not going to be allowed to just get the main idea. They're going to dig in and understand that work of literature or philosophy or of history and own it for themselves because they're in a conversation with their peers guided by a teacher who's not going to allow them to, to sort of free range. There's going to be a focus on trying to get what's in there out and own it. Uh, but I have to say that Humane Letters course is at the heart of what we do uh, because it's a very philosophical understanding of reading, right? That we read in order to become larger, you know, enlarged intellectually, morally. I mean, we're encountering great minds and they rub off on us. What are some of the great books that oh, students yeah. read? Okay, so in the American Experience, you know, Twain and Melville and Hawthorne, sort of the usual suspects. The American Experience is, by the way, uh, begins with the Constitution, the Declaration of the Constitution, the Federalist Papers. Then they read Tocqueville, right, so they get a chance to reflect on the early republic with our French interlocutor. Um, and then they're, they're studying the, the arc of American history, right, as well, even as they're studying those great books. Um, they will, in their 10th grade year, move chronologically in reverse. So they begin to study through uh, the modern European experience. So philosophers like Locke and Rousseau, alongside of literature, uh, and again, here we would have Dickens and, and other uh, volumes or novels uh, of the modern experience. But the focus is really going to be on that historical and philosophical frame of modern European experience. Um, their 11th or junior, their 11th grade year, they fall all the way back into antiquity. And it's there that they read Plato and Aristotle for the first time. Um, they will be exploring uh, the tragedians, the, the Greek tragedians. The 12th grade year then are great books, but it's more of an arc of the whole. If they went in reverse chronology, grades 9, 10, and 11, uh, by the time they get to the, their senior year, they're then having a kind of overview from the Greek, the Hellenistic, the Roman experience, leading with the founding myth of Rome, Virgil, and, and moving all the way across through Augustine and Aquinas on law, uh, finishing up in their in their final semester and quarter, reading the brothers Karamazov, Dostoevsky. So I think the stereotypical uh, view of Generation Z is that they're all glued to their phones, they have no attention spans. How in practice do these classes actually work out? Do students show engaged? Does it sometimes spiral off into nonsense? Or how does it no, go? No, they, they do engage. In fact, I would have to say uh, perhaps more than you would expect uh, from a generation that has been, has been raised on digital feed. Um, and it's not that our kids don't own cell phones. Of course they do, right? And yes, they've got as many screens perhaps as, uh, as their counterparts, but not in the school. And not for those seven sacred hours. <laughs> so you don't um, allow cell phones in the no, school? No, no. Yeah, in fact, yeah, they'll, be, they'll be nabbed if they pull them out. So nice. uh, after hours, you know, and before school, make sure you get your communication into friends and family and what have you. But then it's, uh, you unplug for that, uh, for that period of time. Because it is, it's important for us, I think, not, not in a curmudgeonly way, right, to sort of tell them that they have to, to unplug but perhaps more in um, developing habits, right? We are very Aristotelian in this. Aristotle told us that, you know, habits are everything. I mean, essentially they are our destiny. We want to teach them some habits of mind and habits of discourse, the, the conversation I mentioned in the seminar, uh, and habits of attentiveness, which are all but disappearing 
in our in our society and in this age because of Zuckerberg's influence. You know, okay, that's that's cheap shot at Mark, but uh, I do fear that the the social media frenzy, right? Just the the, the constant again. I've got a the FOMO syndrome, right? Like fear of missing out. I got to be there. I got to I got to see the action. I got to be where it's at. Um, we're taking them to distant shores, right? You know, realms of gold, as the poets put it, that are absolutely engaging, but they have to develop a habit of appreciation for that, of a, a recognition that it's going to take a little more energy than just the swipe on my phone. So um, we do get them engaged. I mean, it's pretty remarkable what you will hear 16, 17, 18-year-olds say in our schools. Yeah, they'll read Aristotle, as I told you, the Nicomachean Ethics in, in 11th grade. And you'll have them uh, really trying to parse his understanding of what it means to be happy, you know, to, in Aristotelian terms, right? This is fullness or flourishing or, you know, human excellence. What is virtue? And how do we find or understand this mean? I'm sure, I'm confident at more than 50 years of age that most of this goes over their heads. <laughs> the depth of Aristotle, the depth psychology, if you will, of Aristotle is something that you probably have to be 40 or 50 and have some life experience to really process. However, they're wrestling with it at 17 because they do want to understand what it means to be happy, right? They want to know what it means to have true friendship. And Aristotle's got some pretty good starting points for that. And I will say, as someone who read Aristotle in high school at the time, I was very confident I understood it. I now have some doubts on that. But. Yeah, yeah. You can go back to it, right? <laughs> well, but that would require my own phone addiction ending. <laughs> but um, to switch gears a little sure. bit, um, so you advertise that you're tuition-free. I assume that's mm-hmm. because you're charter schools. How does that work? Is the government funding it, and is there government control that you then have to deal with? Yeah. So charter schools are by definition uh, public offerings it's an arrangement with the state and I think the vast majority of our states now have charter laws that make this possible an organization uh, families and others will come forward and say we want to contract with the state right to provide education for the children we will have to meet whatever minimum requirements uh, standards right the state sets for schools but beyond that we are given the autonomy to deliver a form of education that we think is suitable, right, and, and beneficial to our students. So the contract with the state uh, requires, again, an acceptance of certain limits, but with it, per-pupil funding, right? So the funding that would otherwise go uh, to any other district school down the street is apportioned, by the way, at a discount rate, right? We don't even get the full, the full amount. Nonetheless, uh, in a rather austere environment like Arizona, uh, we might get $6,500 per pupil. And uh, when possible, families do step forward and actually make additional donations because they love what their children are receiving at our schools. Um, so it is publicly funded in that respect, right, in the same way that any Arizona or Texas school uh, receives per pupil funding. Uh, but again, it's in a slightly different track, and we don't have to go into all the details there, but uh, a charter school being a public entity receives public uh, state funds, right, to, to support it. Okay. Um, so your website states that you form hearts and minds, yeah. and I was curious about the claim that you form hearts. How yeah. would you say you go about that? Okay. And why is that important? Yeah, well, it is crucial because uh, I think we live in an age, and it's been this way for some time, where we think of the intellect or the mind as somehow distinct from 
uh, what we're calling the heart. It's just the most easily or accessible English word. Uh, as you probably know, since I understand your pedigree, the Greeks had this notion of spirit or thumos. Uh, we're trying to give shape to the spirit. We'll call it the heart for today. Uh, because it's from there, the sort of seat of emotions, uh, that the intellect will make a determination as to what it will pursue. There's a, a sense in which uh, we want to form hearts or spirits because we know that's the real engine, kind of the mainspring, if you will, that drives us to do things. You know, the things we love. We don't have any trouble getting up and reading extensively the, the manual uh, on the motorcycle if we want to fix it so that we can go take it for a spin, right? Uh, if you love it, you're motivated. You're, your spirit is driven to, to pursue it. We are trying to provide a form of education where our students' loves right, are tapped into. They begin to learn to love what is true. They are drawn to what is beautiful. They recognize that goodness is desirable and they want it for themselves and to have a mere intellectual conversation about um, knowledge or knowledge domains or content um, leaves something's missing right in the long run if you're just reading a text or just studying a subject in order to pass the exam regurgitate what you need to know for the examination and then move on it won't stick right we're actually trying to give shape to their affections, what in times past was referred to as sentiment. So we want to bring intellect and sentiment together once again. Again, I know those are kind of intellect, we use that word. Sentiment, we don't use that so much these days. We think of sentimental. Again, I'm talking about the things that, think of, think of the, uh, you know, the, 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 think of the soccer match, right, in Europe, uh, you know, if you ever watch soccer uh, and, and the big leagues, uh, the spirit of the crowd, right? The way they go wild when their team is winning. We're trying to tap into that kind of love that the fan has, right, for their ball club. Uh, we're trying to give or create or cultivate that kind of love for good and noble things, right? Which we find in great books, which we find in great works of art, which we find uh, really in the communities that we're trying to form around the humility and friendship of receiving this tradition. So what to you as a graduate you're proud of? I mean, in the abstract, like what makes someone, you think they've gotten a great education and it shows? Yeah. I just use the word humility and I'm confident that that's a part of it. Uh, we, in our, in our very tradition, right, in the, from, from the Greeks, you know, going back to Socrates and even pre-Socratic texts, we realize that you can produce a cohort of intellectuals who absolutely are devoted to self-aggrandizement, right? They just, all they care about is knowing what they know so they can manipulate the system, make more bucks, dominate others, right? We call them the sophists, right, in the, in the Greek tradition, although that's probably not very kind of the sophists. They were probably better than that. But, <laughs> but the point is, um, I fear, I fear that a Great Hearts Academy or one of these other classical schools could produce very intelligent, articulate, thoughtful men and women who think that knowledge is simply a means to selfish ends. And if they come out on that end, I'm trying to show you the anti-form uh, before I promote what, what a 
what a, a really a great graduate would be. Uh, if they come out as sophists, then we've failed. And that's a, that's a real possibility. It's happened throughout our tradition, right? Throughout, throughout history. A really a success story, right, within our academies and I think within classical schools generally is a humble, thoughtful, well-versed, uh, holistic you know, person who understands that these things fit together, that the science and the math and the art and the literature actually are speaking about the human experience in various and sundry ways and that it coheres. There's a way of seeing the world with that kind of depth. And they will be humble because they know they've only begun to scratch the surface if they've been with us for 13 years. Even if we had them from K to 12, right? They are still novices, right? They're better off than their peers, yes, but they're still beginners, right, in this long-standing great conversation, as it's called, uh, by many. And so they would be humble, but they would also recognize, I've received this, and I'm now responsible for propagating it. Literally, I, I will give this to others. I will share what I have learned and what I have received. Uh, because in the, uh, in the classical vein, if we just sort of talk about generally 2,500 years of this form of education, there was always a philosophical element of consideration, contemplation, reflection, and there was an oratorical element where those who had been so educated had to step forward articulate a vision for the future of their society, of their particular society, their moment, their place, their time, right? And say, we can do better. So classically educated young people should in fact become, most of them in one way or another, should become leaders in their time and in their place because they've been given something that's designed by definition to be, to, to encompass or to in, um, to offer, as I said, a vision, right, of a better society. Their, their powers of persuasion, their capacity to understand or to know is to be used in service to the society. If our graduates end up doing that, and they have, we have about 2,200 alum now, and you see them going into careers in the military, into the professions, medicine, law, politics, uh, you see them starting families, right? And in no, all of this. I, I don't know if they're going into politics. Are you sure they're not sophists? <laughs> yeah. I've got to be careful. Uh, so. Well, <laughs> so I saw in your bio that you've done a lot of research on um, fights in the education system in America in the early 1900s. Yeah. And I was interested in that. If you could maybe tell us what that fight was about and how it ended and how it um, still affects education today for most Americans. Yeah, yeah it certainly does affect most Americans. Uh, these classical schools are very much a minority. And uh, if we were to start the, if we were to roll the clock back 200 years, 150 years even, we would see at a normal school preparing teachers something very much akin to what I'm describing of the classical form. Um, because teachers would have understood that's what you do. The, the so-called three R's or Latin grammar instruction, right? Geography and math and science and, and literature. This was just, that was status quo 150 years ago. It was the turn of the century under figures like John Dewey. Uh, there, there was a host of others that are involved here. I think of Edward Thorndike in particular 
as having incredible influence with the introduction of IQ testing uh, and kind of the measurement apparatus. The 20th century became, I mean, it's sort of the century of measurement as it relates to education. And so today when we see the ubiquitous standardized test, whether it's at the state level, right, to, to measure uh, state standards or the achievement of English language arts or mathematics, you know, numeracy and literacy, uh, or whether it's the SAT, right, for some sort of aptitude, imagined aptitude for college uh, entrance. I mean, those things got their birth in the 20th century, SAT and so 1925, 26, something like that. I mention it because Thorndike, Dewey, and others were really launching a science of education. Now, that sounds all well and good, except that education is not a science. That is to say, it's not the formation of the human mind and soul or spirit, as we were talking about earlier, uh, is not subject to laboratory experimentation the way a chemical, you know, uh, the, the way a physical or material reaction is going to be replicable in a laboratory. Uh, human beings, the process of learning, given everything we can learn from cognitive science and psychology, it's still a very messy business. It's still saturated in language. It's still essentially mimetic, by which I mean imitative. Right? We learn the arts of language and the arts of mathematics and even the skills or the techne of a particular science by apprenticing to someone who's done it and who knows what they're talking about, right? Students learn by that imitation of a teacher. Uh, or even, as I mentioned in the seminar, imitation of the teacher who gives guidance to a conversation around a text which we are imitating. We're sort of learning how to conduct an argument by reading Madison or Hamilton in the Federalist Papers, right, to see how an argument is un unpacked. Um, that art of education, those arts, if you will, the liberal arts, um, are so at odds with the science that was attempting to kind of perfectly measure and quantify and then really identify the individual's capacities so that they could place them in a proper vocational track, right? So that we could find out. And again, I'm sympathetic to what they were attempting. You've got, <laughs> you know, waves of immigrants. Uh, you've got this explosion of the inner cities. Uh, these kids are probably running amok, you know? <laughs> so they're trying to put them in schools and give them something to do. It's, it's kind of you know, it's a social service, effectively. Well, and also, I mean, it's the struggle we still have today. You know, how can it we is. be sure schools are effective if there's not one test? That's right. That's right. And we're so deeply, you know, sort of in that vein. Uh, in other words, we, we can't even stop and question it. Occasionally we do. But I'm suggesting that at the beginning of the 20th century, the move towards this efficiency this kind of social, political improvement that's actually there in the what we often refer to as the progressive mode, that schools are going to actually bring about the reform of, of uh, society. And we will institute certain features uh, of the schools to improve on society. And so at, really at the, the low point of this work, or one of the low points, you know, hygiene and uh, think of... <laughs> all types of activities, life skills they were referred to in the 1950s are the result of this 
trying to turn education into a smorgasbord of skills given to to students through the schools, through the institutions and schools, as opposed to thinking very closely and carefully about the arts of language, right, and mathematics and the sciences and the liberal arts as the fundamental or the essential thing that schools were to give to students. And so I would say what we're living with, what most Americans are living with, right, these liberal arts schools are pretty rare. Uh, Liberal arts K-12 schools are pretty rare. What most Americans are living with is some uh, version of the progeny, the intellectual or or institutional progeny of a progressive turn uh, where education is fundamentally about a science measured for the purposes of social reform uh, so as to equip the next generation with skills. And I'm not talking about language skills per se, right? To sort of give them what they have to do to get the job. Um, I mean, how often have we heard college and career ready? Right. I mean, that's just a, a mantra. And I'm thinking to myself, what do you mean by that? Or, or, or creative thinking, right? Or communications. Right. Uh, what do you mean by that? If you've ever tried to dig down on some of the kind of more popular um, catchphrases in education, there's not much there there. Um, and if I were to say, let's go ahead and talk about what it means to think and respond critically to a particular proposition. Let's talk about logic, right? Let's talk about fallacies. At that point, most of my colleagues in this more progressive vein are saying, what? Just, just, uh, just critical thinking, critical thinking, right? Be creative. Learn to communicate. All of that is, is again, desirable, but it's done by this process, this artful process of imitation to masters. So lastly, I know that you guys stop at 12, but I'd say the college admission scandal has shaken a lot of people and has made them question what is the state of education in the U.S. today? These universities that were seen as the top universities, apparently students were able to, whether knowingly or not, cheat and yet pass their classes. Mm -hmm. Cheat to get in, that is. Um, Do you think that has a larger message about the state of education in the United States? And if so, how do we fix this? I said to you that a successful, you know, a graduate that I would be proud of, I think that anyone in our schools would be proud of, would be humble. I should have said honest. <laughs> let me let me add Not that to the list. Not cheating against us? Okay. That's right. I mean, I, I, think I, I did crew. say virtuous, right? I did say virtuous. And uh, no virtue in that. You know, just as soon as we're at the place where students think it's just about passing the exam or getting the admissions or checking the next academic box so that I can, you know, pave my way. I'm back to the idea of an education that is purely for the utility. Just, just get me what I want. This is just a, again, it's a, it's a mile marker that I have to pass to get to the place where I want to be, which is comfortable, uh, you know, with a well, with a good paying job. Everyone wants a good paying job. I'm not, I'm not in any way speaking ill of that. In fact, <laughs> here at Heritage, I'm excited at the prospect of what I think liberal education has to offer to the entrepreneurial position that we want to encourage in our society. People who think, as we say, outside the box, right? Who are just creative and driven to think of solutions that haven't yet been considered, right? And that might well be the next, the new, new thing, right? 
I think liberal edu- I think Google and Microsoft and others are now saying this. They're hiring liberally educated young people. Well, imagine if we educated in that fashion from kindergarten, not when they turn 18 and go off to college. But the, to the scandal, I mean, there's no integrity, right? I don't know. I mean, how do these people look themselves in the mirror knowing that they rigged it and had their parents help them? You know, their parents were in on it too. There's no integrity. Now, I don't, I'm not going to sit here like a scold and wag my finger. I get it. That's sort of, that's the way of the world, if you will, today. But if these schools continue to grow and thrive, these classical schools, I know that they will produce a generation that knows the difference between the utility. Because these, our students are getting, you know, SATs, average SAT, like 1260. Average. And we have, again, keep in mind, we have 19,000 students we serve. And anyone who knows statistics knows that the mean is drawn to the extreme. So even in our extreme, that is to say, you know, if you look at our whole population, look at that bell curve, 1260, not a bad SAT. I think that our students should come out on the far end of a, of a Great Hearts education with an understanding that the the utility's there because I'm studying language and I'm learning arguments and I know my math and I've studied math for seven years in a prep school. My sciences, I've studied those deeply. All of that is going to equip me to enter college. But the fact is I have to enter college on my own merits. And there's more to college in the experience of engaging with my professors and my peers than just checking that next box. I hope that our graduates will be truly reflective in their college, college going, you know, their college years, and that they would, they would know that if they were to cheat, uh, to, to make entrance and to somehow succeed at the college level, they would only be cheating themselves, right? That true integrity of mind and heart would require them to be honest and to use whatever talents they have uh, for the benefit of others. Robert Jackson, again, Chief Academic Officer of Great Hearts Academies, which has 30 charter schools now across Arizona and Texas. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. If you're tired of high taxes, fewer health care choices, and bigger and bigger government, it's time to partner with the most impactful conservative organization in America. We're the Heritage Foundation, and we're committed to solving the issues America faces. Together, we'll fight back against the rising tide of homegrown socialism, and we'll fight for conservative solutions that are making families more free and more prosperous. But we can't do it without you. Please join us at Heritage.org. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thanks for listening to the Daily Signal podcast brought to you from the Robert H. Bruce Radio Studio at the Heritage Foundation. Please be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify, and please leave us a review or a rating on iTunes to give us feedback. Robin Virginia, we'll see you Monday. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is executive produced by Kate Trinko and Daniel Davis. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, the Leah Rampersad, and Mark Guiney. For more information, visit DailySignal.com.